0: This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvisei's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvisei's teachings, or sign up for a newsletter, please visit our website at org. Thanks for listening. Sometime in 1970 or 1971, there was a a French sailor by the name of Frank Mulville. And he uh, sailed solo, single-handed, across the Atlantic to Cuba. And um, he had an experience of what he called bliss. And he described feeling um, uh, really in love with the ocean, the solitude, the silence, his boat. uh, was named Iskra. And he wanted to, uh, in a sense, step back and look at what was happening. And so he decided to uh, tie himself with a rope. Uh, When his boat was still sailing, to tie himself and float away from the boat so that he could look at it uh, from a distance. And this is how he describes it. It made me feel quite dizzy to look at her. She seemed the most lovely thing dipping in and out of sight as she mounted the long Atlantic swell and then slipped into the hollows. This, it struck me, was the supreme moment of my life. I had never achieved anything to equal it, and I was never likely to again. This was the ultimate experience. It was my dream, and I had it. Why not let go of the rope? To melt into the sea at this apex of experience was the only thing left. Nothing that could happen in the future could better this. And mystics, for example, have described these um, sometimes very strong experiences of, of bliss during meditation... And also in daily life, people who spend time in the wild uh, report a sense of the complete rightness of things, including very much themselves, their wholeness. And so he says, I stayed at the end of the rope for a while and then I began to get frightened. I glanced deeply into the womb of the sea and watched the shafts of sunlight as they spent their energy uselessly in its density. I slipped the bowline off my shoulders and hung for an instant at the very end of the rope, my fingers grasping the bare end of life itself. And then I hold myself back, hand over hand. This is the moment of reckoning this moment of hanging at the end of the rope. And it's a moment that every practitioner must face if we sit long enough. And it really forces us to ask, what happens, what is there at the limit of what is knowable? And in that moment, do we hold on or do we let go? And for a while... Sometimes a good long while. Zazen is really just about taming our minds, quieting our minds. You know, they're, they're noisy, they're unruly, they're anything but calm or centered. And I often think of um, water striders, you know, where we're just flitting about. Really on the surface, skimming the surface of our minds, But if we're following the Zazen instructions that we've received, if we're sitting well and as deeply as we can, as wholeheartedly as we can, eventually we do settle into a deeper uh, level of stillness and silence. And we begin to notice, sometimes for short periods, sometimes for a period of Zazen or, or longer, that our minds are steady. They are becoming quieter. That we're able to stay on the breath without distraction. We can focus without pushing, with, without tightening. And that's when we begin to sense that there is more. I was saying to somebody earlier that, that we are floating, in fact, on the, the surface of the ocean, and our feet are dangling, and we can sense that there's a whole world, a whole universe down there beneath our feet that there's miles and miles of water that we have not yet seen, we have not yet explored, and we want to, and it is frightening. And we know also, without knowing, that what is stopping us is that rope tied around our shoulders, the one who is still watching and even subtly measuring our progress. And we know that we have to let go of the rope. And the thought is terrifying. Because we have no idea what we will meet. We're afraid we'll meet nothing. We're afraid that our very being will disappear. Uh, People describe this often. This experience of feeling like they're right at the edge and not being able to take that next step. Because what if... I disappear. What if I lose myself? It feels like a kind of death. And we speak about it, in fact, in those terms, in Zen, the great death. But it's not what we think it is. It's the death of an idea, of an illusion. But... thinking about this, even knowing it, doesn't make it that less, any less frightening at that moment. And so that's why we cannot give too much weight to our thoughts. Yoshigen Sensei recently has been um, repeating a refrain. Um, he says something like, you have to be disinterested in your thoughts have to not be interested in your thoughts and he clarifies that it's not the content of your thoughts it's not that if you're thinking about something that is very important to you that that thing is not important it's the thoughts themselves that we need to let go of therefore that instruction see the thought let it go and come back come back to what? to yourself but what is that? And if we take that other image of, of standing at the edge of a precipice and we know what's behind us, we've, we've been there, we've seen it, we've been living there, we've gone its length and its breadth, and we know that it's not satisfying. And that is why we're standing right there at the edge of the chasm with our toes curled over the edge. And we know the only way forward is to jump. But into what? What? And that is the thought, what if I lose myself and don't come back? What if what's at the bottom just devours me, consumes me? What if I like it and I choose not to return? And I think of all our great myths, the hero descending into the depths to fight the dragon, descending into hell and to the bottom of the ocean, entering a desolate desert, stretches as far as the eye can see. And that they do it alone, because they have to, because you can't really bring anyone in this voyage. And that although there are maps, hundreds, thousands, millions of maps, they're of little use at that moment of being right there on the, on the edge, and the actual traveling. Traveling. They point the way and I think they can give us great comfort in in the fact that so many people have traveled the same way before and they have come back and they have lived to tell the tale. But we're still the ones who have to jump off the face of that cliff and see what's at the bottom. And it is true, this story of the lone hero. But of course, that's just one piece of the story. There's always more to the story. Those millions of people who have, in fact, made that jump, that dive, regardless of age, of gender, intellectual capacity, regardless of religion, as long as human beings have walked this earth, they have also died this death. And perhaps a, I wrote truer name, but I don't know that that's the right word. A, a different name is freedom. It's the unbinding, the birthless and the deathless. There's a koan that says, when you die once, you cannot die again. And and we should reflect on the applications of this. When you die once, you cannot die again. And another way of saying it is that when there is something that is not born, it cannot die. Ever. So, this self that we are so terrified of letting go of, what if we begin to see that it was actually never there to begin with? Not in the way that we thought. that there's actually no one jumping. There is no cliff. There's no precipice. And yet, standing at the edge of that cliff, the fear is very real. And it takes quite a bit of determination to not let it stop you. And that is the eighth paramita, determination the unshakable resolve to do anything that will benefit others, that will benefit ourselves. And it is accompanied by compassion and skillful means. But it's also the determination to practice very simply, very directly, very wholeheartedly, to study our, our minds and to use what we see in order to benefit all beings in order to benefit the world all worlds the four skilled determinations are to be um, to not be negligent of discernment or right view to cultivate wisdom because without it we're already on shaky ground to guard Truthfulness, to be devoted to renunciation, renunciation of what is unskillful, and to train in equanimity. And of course, these are four of the other paramitas, the perfections, these uh, virtues of a great, of an enlightened being, of an enlightenment being. As one translation of Bodhisattva. I've always liked that. And so determination is needed, of course, to practice all of the paramitas. And they actually depend, all of them depend on every other one. It's uh, a, a very intricate, tightly knit web whose um, strands are so, so intimately entwined that as Daidoroshi Roshi always loved to, to say with the Net of Indra, you touch one strand of the, of the web and the whole web is affected. You cannot isolate any of them. And all of the paramitas, without exception, have as their characteristic the the benefit of others. As their function, the offering of that very help. Khandro Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, uh, says, you know, in the West, we, we sometimes uh, put a lot of weight and a lot of emphasis on on what we're doing with our mind and the liturgy and our aspiration, our vows, which, of course, is very important. But she said, you know, the moment it becomes abstract, it becomes abstract. So if you're, if you're vowing every day to save all sentient beings, but you're not doing anything about it, what's the point? So she said, somebody walks by with a broom. You take the broom from their hands and you say, let me do this. It was very Nitty-gritty. is very ordinary and very real. So we don't get lost in the, in the ether. So that function of uh, the paramitas is to offer that help concretely and without hesitation. Their manifestation is the wish for the welfare of all beings, the realization of all beings. And their proximate cause is great compassion and skillful means. And of course, as long as we're filled, we're preoccupied with ourselves, it's very difficult to help others. We can't even see the other. We just don't have space. And so our practice is the study of the self, is the forgetting of that self. So standing at the edge of that precipice, at that very limit, that very boundary of your experience, and your mind is still, and it's quiet, but perhaps your heart is pounding. You, you want to jump, and you don't. But you do. You do, or you wouldn't be on that seat. And sometimes you're pushed from behind. Sometimes there's a word Sometimes the, the slap of the kyosaku a sound, is all it takes. Sometimes you just get bored. You get exhausted with your hesitation, with your known, recycled storylines. You, you are no longer willing to stay on the sidelines. And so you take that step. And then immediately, you think twice. And maybe you turn around and you grab onto a branch. So you're holding onto it by your nails. And zazen is that moment when your body jerks. You know, you're, you're feeling, you're getting quiet and quiet. And all of a sudden, you just bring yourself back out of your concentration. Or, or you have a moment, a period that is extremely still and silent. And then the next one is a Circus. You know, the inane images and stories, things you've never, you you hadn't thought about in 20 years, and all of a sudden they're popping up. That one line of a song, you just keep looping over and over and over again. This is what the self does. This is what Mara does. I I was speaking about Mara the other day. You know, that aspect of ourselves that is, that wants us to stay asleep basically that wants us to stay just on the surface and it won't give up easily but after a while you you know this you become familiar with it and you resolve to stay steady to try again as, as many times as you need to to get to that edge and you're no longer waiting for it to just happen you begin to learn how to bring yourself very directly to that precipice. You, you learn how to cultivate samadhi. And so it's no longer having to wait for, for the mind to settle, but to actually very, very deliberately do that. You know what you have to do, and you just go ahead and you do it. And we do this long enough or often enough. And there is that moment when you don't even have to jump. There's no time, in fact, to jump. The jikiro strikes the bell for the period to begin. A moment later, the jikiro strikes the bell for the period to end. You weren't there, in a way. And yet, if somebody was to walk by, they would see you sitting there. So the bell rings, and you get up, and you realize you're there in one piece. Everything is okay. And in one way, you know, nothing really happened. In another way, everything has changed. And then you begin to realize, well, that fear of the abyss, of the unknown, of this vast, unlimited space was actually unnecessary. Because in that letting go, it is in fact the most normal thing. It's what it's your mind wants to do. It's what your body wants to do. It doesn't want to hold on to, to a rope for the rest of your life. It doesn't want to be bound. And you realize this precipice is actually not a precipice at all. You took that step and you realize... As you stepped into the void, you were standing on the ground, on the ground of reality, the ground of being, which is not solid at all, and yet it is the, the firmest, most stable ground you will ever walk on. There's another sailor, Moitissier, who decided as he was in this this was a, a different time but he was sailing solo around the world and at a certain point he decided that winning was not the thing that it was the sailing itself that he was interested in and so he just went off on his own and he says uh, there's a point at which there was no longer man and boat but a man boat a boat man What you would call isolation, I would call communion. The things that mattered at the start didn't matter anymore. I want to go further because there is something more to see. That is the key. There is always something more to see. And we won't know what it is as long as we stay on the surface. As long as we stay at the edge. There's a very, uh, a very nice koan, a very long koan, but there's just a, a piece there at the end. There's a, a ferryman, uh, Chuanzi, and he's having a, a dialogue with uh, Shan. And at one point, Chuanzi says to him, you know, I'm hanging a line. They're having this interaction. I'm hanging a line uh, a thousand feet deep, and the heart is just three inches off the hook. I've always loved that line. He's saying, you know, I'm, I'm really plumbing the depths, and you're just, you're just right over here. And he says, why don't you say something? And Jashan is about to open his mouth, and he takes with a, with a boat pole, and he whacks him and throws him into the water, basically. So Jashan comes up sputtering, gets back on the boat, and Chuan Si says, say something. And he's about again to open his mouth. And again, he knocks him out of the boat. So this happens three times. And as the, the third time, you know, Jeshan is coming back up on the boat. He realizes himself. And he bows. And Chuanzi says, you know, now you can go and teach. And Jeshan is leaving. He goes on, on shore. And he's just walking away, taking leave of his teacher. And he keeps turning and looking back. And Chuanzi calls out to him, reverend. And and, uh, Jashan turns, and Chuan Si holds up his oar and says, there is something more. And then he, upon uttering these words, he jumps out of the boat and disappears into the mist and waves. There is always something more. We shouldn't forget that. Because we get used to uh, we get used to a particular um, space, a particular um, nook of practice. And it's, it's ironic and, um, though not surprising, but that often, you know, in the beginning, students are so, um, they so want to see. And often, you know, they're coming to practice because they want to be, to alleviate their suffering. And so they're really compelled to practice and to sit as well as they can. And often you'll, you'll hear you know, them experiencing these, these, these moments of truly letting go of the self. And I think in a, in a subtle way, it gets harder the longer we practice because we, one, get tired of working so hard. We think, you know, it's not necessary. My life is it's pretty good now. You know, I'm I'm not in the throes of suffering anymore. So maybe I can I can take it easy. And it's not a matter of uh, being frantic about it, but I think it does require a, a, a deep deep desire to always be able to go deeper, to always see a little bit more than what we've have seen. And so no matter how far we think we've come, how much we think we've seen, it, it is um, incumbent upon us and no one else, really, to strengthen our determination to keep going. You know, passing koans is staying on the surface. And I don't mean seeing cons; I mean passing koans. Worrying about who's ahead or behind, who has more or less power, Robe Raksu, staying on the surface. <clears throat> and you know, really, please take this in. You know, it's, it's, it's important because in 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 our we we form our our modes of being. You know, we just we just we enter into practice because that mode didn't work, and now we just create a new one with you know a little more. Um, perhaps a little more you know, desire to, to be awake but it's not that difficult I, I've, I've always felt this very strongly it's not that difficult to at, at any moment just go to sleep a little bit and then start just skimming again and we impute power and we, and we give time to all sorts of things that are really not that important And this is exactly how we stop ourselves. This is how we give away our power. This is how we let someone else tell us whether we should jump or not. Practice is about realizing our own power, which has nothing to do with name, position, with years of practice. You know, the span of a human life is just long enough to give us that sense of urgency. It's not, not so short that it drives us into a panic, but just long enough to um, keep moving us forward. And it actually, in one way, doesn't matter how much time we have, which, of course, we don't know how long that is, because this is the moment that we have. And having used that image of the cliff, let me say at the same time that I think really most of the time it's more like diving into the ocean. There are those, there are those moments of, of a sudden shift, a leap. But really most of the time, in my experience, is, is, is just a, a gentle, gradual submersion. Sometimes it's imperceptible. And once again, we can take comfort from the fact that, that so many have traveled before us, that they have let go of that rope, and they realize themselves as indivisible from water, from wind, from sky. Vivo sin vivir en mí, uh, said uh, St. Teresa of Ávila. Muero porque no muero. I live without living in myself, and I die because I'm not dying. I die because I have not died to myself, and therefore I can't really live. She was one such traveler. And I talk about determination. I mean, she founded 17 convents, single-handedly, basically. And she would, she would travel every year. She, she would travel to every one of them. by by foot, by donkey. And one trip, she was crossing a river and was very swollen. And she took a misstep and uh, she fell in the water then came back up. But basically, the the wagons that they were traveling in got swept and all of their stuff, all of their possessions were, were swept downstream. And she was just really at the limits of her patience and her endurance. And she... She became quiet and turned inward and heard God say, this is how I treat my real friends. And she said, well, no wonder your Lord has so few then. (laughs) 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 And of course, she was very uh, accomplished in contemplation. She wrote The Way of Perfection, The Interior Castle, her biography. And she speaks of... This work as uh, like the work of tending a garden, and that in the first uh, level, you're, you're, it's like drawing water from a well, so it's hard work, and you have to do all of it. It requires great effort. And then in the next level is you, you set up a, a water wheel, a system, like an aqueduct, and so you're, you're um, setting up the container, if you will, which is really zazen and that, that constant coming back, letting go of a thought and coming back to begin to direct the flow of thoughts. And it requires a little less effort. It still requires quite a bit of effort, but now you have a way to hold the water. And in the next level, you just use water from a river, from a spring. It is directed. You, you plant your garden right in the path of the water and this is when samadhi begins to uh, be able to turn outward into activity and then there's union which is like rainfall it permeates everywhere and she says you know here the soul becomes courageous no matter how dry the soil is becomes uh, courageous. So no matter what you see in front of you, bad period of zazen, good period of zazen, long spells of you think nothing happening, you're not daunted. You don't turn away. She also said, it is of great importance when we begin to practice prayer, zazen, not to let ourselves be frightened by our own thoughts. And when we begin to look closely at, at a thought, we realize what, what is it that we're afraid of. They're not other. They're not wrong. They're not, not actually even in the way when we see them clearly. But we must see them clearly. And it really takes just an instant to let go a moment of courage that's infinitesimal in duration and boundless, immeasurable in scope. That is what's so, so, so about this practice. You know, it doesn't, the thought of it is always um, harder than the actual doing, and it's not at all, and the thought is this, this big compared to the actual experience. So, now there's still time in this day. And whether you feel the rope that is just firmly tied around your waist or it's up on your shoulders, whether you're holding it with both hands or just one hand, one finger, still holding on. There's always, there's always just a little Just a little bit of letting go that is needed. And we can always, always do that. So let's not wait. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.